Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 37 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a two-part case. The second instalment will be available next week. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. The torso of an adult male was discovered by an unsuspecting hunter in the marshes. Who was the unfortunate victim? And will the perpetrator be punished? On October 5th, 1949, Eva Ori went to the Albany Street Police Station in London to report a disappearance. Her brother Stanley was missing. Stanley Setti was born in Baghdad in 1903, but left Iraq as a child. The young boy, along with his family, emigrated to Britain. Like his many siblings who were being raised in a foreign country, he decided to change his name. No longer called Salman Sali, the name he was given at birth, the youngster chose something more anglicised, Stanley Setti. Seeking some form of employment, Stanley began working in retail, first for his father and then for his older brothers. He tried to branch out on his own. Sadly, his aspirations failed to materialise in the way Stanley had hoped. After much effort and a great deal of money wasted, he was left with no other option than to file for bankruptcy. Stanley's financial woes accelerated. Not only did he find himself without an income, but he was in the red. He was charged with offences against the Debtors Act. Feeling trapped, Stanley Setti wanted to leave behind not only the country he had called home for many years, but his outstanding debts. Frustratingly for Stanley Setti, 
he unsuccessfully attempted to evade his creditors, and he was arrested in 1928. After being taken to the local police station, his fingerprints were taken and put on record. Stanley was denied his freedom for 18 months after being sentenced at a Manchester court. After he served his time, Stanley was released. Then, still a young man in his 20s, he wanted to start again and build a new business. But this proved problematic, especially in the eyes of the law. Because he was declared bankrupt, Stanley said he was not legally allowed to run his own business. What's more, finding work was hard. There was a great deal of unrest in the country. World War II was looming, and at the time Oswald Mosley's fascist brigade, the Black Shirts, engaged in street brawls with anti-fascists. As he was Jewish, Stanley also likely faced anti-Semitism. He did, however, avoid being enlisted for the war as he was born in Iraq. Stanley Setti eventually found employment, again working for his brothers, before realising the back streets of London offered lucrative opportunities for people willing to take risks. Now, with the funds to start a new business venture, Stanley set up a car dealership on Warren Street, the pivotal location of used car sales in London. Beginning with Friswell's Automobile Palace on nearby Albany Street in 1902, car dealerships began cropping up on Euston Road and Warren Street. Eager to get in on the newly emerging and profitable car trade industry, large dealerships were soon joined by small fry or pavement dealers, according to reporter Rob Baker writing for The Telegraph. Stanley set up his street corner dealership just after the end of World War II. Post-war Britain was still under rationing, imposed since January 1940, and clothes and certain foods like meat, fats, sugar and cheese were limited through the use of coupons. It was also difficult to purchase cars at the time and money was tight, so the second-hand car salesmen on Warren Street seemed to do rather well for themselves. Black marketeers were known as spivs. They spoke fast, dressed well and were not afraid of navigating the criminal underworld to make a living. Stanley Setti ran his business from a cafe on the corner of Warren Street and Fitzroy. He was also known as being a curbside banker always carrying a large sum of money and willing to provide a loan to people he knew. Charlie Fryer, who worked for Stanley collecting cars, later said of his colleague, he was very well liked in Warren Street, all around. If anybody wanted to borrow a thousand pound and he knew them, they could borrow it with no question, no arguments or anything. Stanley said he operated on a cash or checks only basis. It was not unusual for him to have a lot of money in his pocket, frequently cashing his checks, or having one of his workers cash them at nearby banks like the Yorkshire Penny Bank on the London Street of Cheapside. So, on October 5th, 1949, his friends and family were puzzled when Stanley did not show up for work as usual, just like he had done many times before. The previous day, he had left the house he shared with his sister Eva and her husband Arlie Ori and went to work. When he walked out of the door, he was smartly dressed in his tailor-made clothing a navy blue pinstripe suit, a cream-coloured shirt, a leaf-patterned navy tie and brown shoes. 
nothing out of the ordinary occurred during the day. At one point, he asked one of his workers to cash a cheque for £1,005 from the sale of a Wolseley car. Again, a regular occurrence within the business when a vehicle was sold. Stanley pocketed the cash and shut up shop in the evening. He left work in his eye-catching yellow Citroen. Strangely, the next morning, the Citroen was back at his garage, but the key was missing, and more importantly, so was Stanley Setti. Stanley's sister was concerned for her sibling. He had not come home the previous night, so she rang the garage and colleague Charlie Fry told her that he had not come in. Stanley's girlfriend Connie Palfreyman had not seen him either. There was only one phone call left to make. Stanley's sister Eva contacted the police and reported him missing. Upon hearing the circumstances of Stanley Setti's disappearance, detectives were suspicious. Stanley's belongings and passport were still in the flat he shared with his sister and her husband, but he was nowhere to be found. Neither was the £1,005 his staff knew he had in his pocket the night before. Officers searched his car and dusted for fingerprints. They noted that the ashtray was full, despite the vehicle having been cleaned the day before Stanley was reported missing. Stanley's brother-in-law, Arlie Ori, gave the police Stanley's address book, and detectives began to look through it to see who he associated with. On October 8th, the police appealed to the public to examine any £5 notes in their possession to see if the serial numbers match those notes confirmed to have been given to Stanley Setti on October 4th, when the cheque was cashed. During the time, £5 notes were distinct, so it did not take long for someone to come forward with one of the missing banknotes. Two days later, there was a call to Stanley's home from a woman who claimed she had arranged to meet him at a hotel. Then something unsettling happened that same night. Eva and Arliori returned from an evening out and realised someone had been inside their home. It was a beautifully presented property with luxurious furnishings. This was where Stanley also lived. Puzzlingly, the door had not been forced open. It appeared whoever came inside used a key. Aside from Eva and Ali, Stanley was the only person who had a spare key, and he had it with him when he left for work the day he was last seen. The police announced that they feared Stanley Setti had been taken against his will and killed. The motivation? Money. Stanley had told his girlfriend Connie that he was going to Watford to buy a car on the evening he went missing, and officers were worried that the sale was bait. Detectives had tried to find the person who was to sell Stanley a Jaguar, but no one came forward. Interviewed about her brother's disappearance, Eva Ori spoke to a reporter with the Daily Herald. Stanley was always home by 11pm. He did not drink and had very few women friends. We noticed that his Citroen was parked in the mews outside his garage at about 10.30 on Tuesday night. We thought he would soon be in, but he did not turn up. The search of nearby towns, woodlands, Old shelters and derelict buildings that had been out of commission since the war was conducted, and officers questioned all of the car dealers on Warren Street, as well as known associates in Paris and Palestine. On October 15th, the reward of £1,000 was offered, quote, 
for information leading to Stanley's discovery, dead or alive. Stanley said his siblings and friends on Warren Street described him as generous and kind. But others told tales of a different Stan the Spiff. Many tips came in, and many were dismissed as rumours. The police had to investigate every lead. Some witnesses spoke about Stanley being involved with militants and ordering the death of some smugglers. It was theorised that he may have been killed in an act of revenge. Still, the police could not find any proof that Stanley was connected to any serious criminal enterprises. When Sidney Tiffin came across human remains in the marshes along the Essex coastline on October 21st, 1949, the police were quick to suspect that it was linked to the disappearance of Stanley Setti. Tiffin lived in Tillingham, but had been in his boat on the Denji marshes hunting for wildfowl. The waterlogged land stretched for miles, and there was rarely anyone else around. It had been just after midday when Sidney Tiffin noticed a bundle floating in the water that had been swept in with the tide. At first sight, it looked to be a parcel wrapped in grey material and tied with some string. Tiffin leaned over the edge of his boat and cut the fibres. As the bundle came undone, a headless and legless torso floated out into the muddy water. The arms were tied behind the victim's back with something that looked like webbing or leather. The body was clothed in a cream-coloured shirt, and at the point where the legs had been severed, a pair of navy blue trousers, with the suspenders still attached. Sidney Tiffin could not bring the remains onto his boat, so he planted a stake in the mud and tied the victim's arms to it, so the dismembered body would not float away. He rushed to the nearest police station in Bradwell-on-Sea and reported the grisly find. Just after 4pm, Tiffin and members of the Essex County Constabulary went back to the marshes to investigate. The following morning, the remains were recovered and taken for a post-mortem by Dr. Francis Camps. Dr. Camps was one of the most highly respected pathologists in the southeast. He noted that the torso was of a male who likely stood around 5 feet 7 inches tall and weighed approximately 188 pounds, or just below 13 and a half stone. There were five puncture wounds in the abdomen, one in the stomach, two by the collarbone, and two that had pierced the intercostal muscles between the ribs, penetrating the upper and lower lobe of the lung. Dr. Camps believed that the legs and head had been removed with a saw. Death was caused due to blood loss as a result of the stab wounds that pierced the lung. The fatal wounds had been inflicted by a sharp, double-edged blade between one and four inches in length. The dismemberment had occurred after death, as had another peculiar injury. The victim's ribcage had been shattered. This type of injury was familiar to Dr. Camps. He had performed autopsies on soldiers whose parachutes had failed to deploy during the war. This indicated that the body had been crushed or thrown from a height. The victim had dark skin. They were also wearing a well-tailored shirt with the name of an East End tailor from London on the label. Dr. Camps believed that the torso belonged to Stanley Setti. The clothing was removed and sent to the police lab at Scotland Yard for analysis. Due to the level of decomposition and waterlogging seen on the body, 
it was difficult for fingerprint samples to be taken in a typical fashion. Dr. Camps degloved the victim's hands by making an incision at the wrists and peeling back the skin. They sent the fingertips to Scotland Yard to be analysed by Superintendent Frederick Sherrill. The skin was sagging and wrinkled as a result of being in the water for so long, but Sherrill was able to chemically dry the fingertips and place them over his own rubber gloves to get usable prints for comparison. Positive identification was then made from the victim's fingertips to the prints on file at the Criminal Records Office in London. It was the torso of missing Stanley Setti. The investigators believed that due to the remoteness of the area, Stanley Setti had been murdered by a gang of criminals somewhere secluded, possibly a hideout. His body was then dismembered before his torso was dumped in the marshes or thrown into the sea and washed ashore. By October 24th, almost three weeks since he had been reported missing, Detectives theorised that Stanley had got into a car on the corner of Euston Road with two male occupants who tied his hands and beat him in order to get something from him. Detectives surmised that when the men had obtained what they were looking for, they broke into the flat Stanley shared with his sister and her husband. For the body to have been carried by the tide to where it was found, it would need to have been dumped into the Blackwater River or further up the coast. Additionally, forensic technicians were able to identify the fabric wrapped around the torso as material used as carpet underlay. The lead investigator on the case, Detective Superintendent Colin McDougall, instructed officers to search garages and farmhouses in Essex to try and find the crime scene. Farm workers who lived near the marshes told the police that they had seen two men acting suspiciously in the area, around the time the police believed the torso had been dumped there. Witness Sidney John Smith explained that he was standing at the gate of his cottage with his father when a small grey saloon pulled up around 30 yards from their driveway. Smith said, Two men who I don't think had seen us got out. The driver, who was six feet tall and fair and wore brown clothes, stood beside the car and started to strip. He took his shirt off, put another one on, then took off his trousers and pulled on another pair. The other man, who was shorter, dark and rather stout, stood near the hedge and also changed his clothing completely. He then went to the boot of the car and threw in the clothes that had been taken off. The men now dressed in smart suits got back into the car and drove off. Frustratingly, a search for the suspects turned up nothing. Following up on a suspicion from pathologist Dr. Camp that the body had been thrown from an aeroplane into the sea, Detective Superintendent McDougall began inquiring at local airports about any suspicious activity. A taxi driver had come forward with one of the missing £5 notes and said that he had been given it after picking up a passenger and driving them to the airport. Inquiries at Southend Airport revealed that a man had landed a single-engine Oster aircraft on October 5th in a dramatic fashion, just narrowly missing another plane as it crossed its flight path. The plane was left at the airport overnight. The pilot got a taxi from Southend to London, again paying with one of the £5 notes known to have been given to Stanley Setti on the day he went missing. The pilot returned to the airport the following morning. The suspect was noticed by a flight instructor who said, He struggled out of the car with a very large parcel that was wrapped up in some brown wrapping, tied up with string. 
I watched him struggle for a minute or two and then felt obligated to offer him my assistance. But when I approached him, he very affirmatively tried to say, I don't want your assistance. Don't come near me. I've got some fish here. And I walked away from him. Detectives are able to uncover that the Oster aircraft had been rented from the United Services Flying Club at Elstree Airport, 40 miles west of South End. The man who rented it paid in cash with four £5 notes. Officers also found out that on both occasions the pilot flew the plane carrying at least one parcel and returned with nothing. Records at Elstree showed that the plane had been rented by Brian Donald Hume. Hume was a small-time car dealer who, like Stanley Setti, conducted his business on Warren Street. Early on the morning of October 26, 1949, three teams of police surrounded Donald Hume's address on Finchley Road. The suspect was swiftly arrested and taken to Albany Street Police Station. He was questioned by Detective Superintendent McDougall and two other officers. When Hume was told that he had been taken into custody concerning the murder of Stanley Setti, Hume replied that he could not help with that as he knew nothing about it. Hume was asked when he last drove a car, and he replied that he had not driven in a number of months. Hume was then confronted with the fact that the police had been informed that he had driven to Elstree Aerodrome and boarded a hired plane with several parcels. Hume replied, I hired a plane that day to go to Southend, but I had no parcels with me. I only had my coat. I hired a car that day and drove myself to the aerodrome. Despite the severity of the crime he was being accused of, Donald Hume was calm and composed, something he had mastered in his 30 years of life. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As Donald Hume would go on to say numerous times, he was born out of wedlock in December 1919. He had a limited and turbulent relationship with his mother, who he believed was his aunt up until his teens. Hume ran off to London and worked menial jobs before attempting to enlist in the international brigades to fight in the Spanish Civil War. He was rejected because he was too young, so he enlisted in the RAF, lying about his age. Subsequently, Hume never made it beyond a trainee pilot, after contracting meningitis following an accident during a training flight. That said, he was not viewed as mentally stable enough for deployment either. Hume considered himself to be pro-Nazi and spoke about things he never experienced as though he had. Hume was discharged in May 1940 and was declared as being psychopathic by the medical board. Donald Hume's criminal career lasted longer than his pilot training. Beginning when he was a teenager, Hume had been in trouble with the law for petty crimes such as joyriding. He began to sell surgical spirits to nightclubs, passing it off as gin, before going on to work as an air raid spotter who assisted in extinguishing any fires caused by bombs. The Blitz destroyed many buildings in London, and Hume's next venture capitalised on the rebuilding of the city. He worked as an electrician. He also managed to acquire an RAF uniform he bought from a friend, and used his false valour to gain access to barracks where he could defraud and steal from servicemen. He was eventually caught and charged with falsely impersonating an RAF serviceman and forgery. Donald Hume enjoyed the reputation a uniform afforded him, so he continued to socialise in RAF clubs. The only thing Hume loved more than notoriety was his dog Tony, a half-husky, half-alsatian who he claimed he fell in love with at first sight. By the late 1940s, Donald Hume was introduced to Cynthia Kahn by her husband, Renato. Cynthia later spoke to reporters about her first marriage. She said that she had been unhappy and that Hume seemed like he would provide all the things she was looking for in a marriage. Security, a comfortable home and the love of a trusted man. They were married in 1948 and welcomed their first child the following summer, a little girl named Alison. Cynthia had been pregnant with twins, but sadly one of the little girls did not survive. That same year Hume began taking flying lessons at Elstree Aerodrome and got his private pilot's licence. He claimed that he was approached for his services often, as he was known as the Flying Smuggler. Despite his claims of success, Donald Hume was declared bankrupt numerous times, and he was often being chased by his creditors. Evidence against Donald Hume was mounting. 
Bloodstains had been discovered in the back of the plane he rented, and when officers searched Hume's home, they found blood staining between the floorboards too. When confronted with this, Hume gave the police a long and laborious story about how he was asked to drop some packages out of a plane by three unknown men. He said that he had been approached by an individual Hume knew as Mac, who asked Hume if he was the flying smuggler. When Hume replied that he was, Mac brought him to a cafe where he was introduced to someone else called Greeny. Greeny and Mac asked Hume to rent an aeroplane and dispose of parcels that contain the plates for printing forged petrol coupons. Supposedly, Hume was later introduced to the third man called The Boy, and they brought two parcels to Hume's home on October 5th. Hume claimed that the men provided him with the money to rent an aircraft and paid him £50 to dump the parcels into the English Channel from the air. The three men told Hume that the parcels were wrapped tightly and not to touch them. Hume described the packages as follows. One 15 by 15 inch Heinz Beans cardboard box, which was tightly tied and felt firm to the touch. The other parcel was approximately 2 feet by 2 feet and round. It had been wrapped with corrugated paper and tied securely with thick cord. Hume said it was heavy, but felt soft when he touched it. He said he stored the parcels in a cupboard in his kitchen before taking them to the airport. After he had hired a car to drive himself, Hume rented a private plane. He said he paid for it with the money he had been given. Hume told detectives, I took off from Elm Street around 4.30 and flew towards South End. I continued out to sea and in a quarter of an hour turned towards the Kent coast. Just before I turned, I opened the door and held the controls with my knees and threw both parcels out of the plane into the sea. Hume had to land the plane at South End. He asked for another pilot to fly it to Elstree as he could not fly at night. Hume said the three men came back with another parcel the following day and he was offered £100 to make a second trip. Hume had to take a taxi to the airport at South End with the third parcel and this time he dropped the package closer to the coast. Hume maintained that he had no idea what was in the boxes until news broke that Stanley Setti's body had been found in the Essex marshes. It was then one of the men called The Boy contacted him and warned Hume to keep quiet. Hume explained that after the threats and learning what exactly he had jettisoned from the plane, he was too frightened for his own safety to alert the police. Officers began to search for the mysterious men that had supposedly given Donald Hume the job and threatened him after he found out what exactly he was transporting. Mac was described as being around 35 years old, 5 feet 10 inches tall, clean-shaven, with fair hair parted in the middle and brushed back. Greeny was in his early 30s, about five feet seven with a dark complexion, a thin black moustache and black hair in a Boston cut. Hume said he spoke, quote, like a Cypriot does. The boy was described as being around 35 years old, five feet nine inches tall, medium build, clean shaven with receding brown hair. As further examinations were undertaken, the police discovered that Donald Hume had recently had his living room carpet cleaned and dried. Beneath the carpet there was extensive staining, analysis of samples taken from between the floorboards in the living room and hallway positively indicated the presence of human blood. 
Detectives were also informed that Hume had a knife sharpened on October 5th. The blade was recovered, and the pathologist said it could have been used to dismember Stanley Setti's body. Furthermore, typo blood was found in a number of locations in Hume's flat. On the underside of the carpet, on the linoleum in the hall, on the plaster beneath the floor, in the bathroom, and on the handrail and wall of the staircase. Hume had also got someone to restain the floorboards in the days after October 5th. Cynthia Hume was asked to give a statement and said that she had been home all the time with their baby, but never saw the three men or the parcels. The search for the remainder of Stanley Setti's body was cooled off on October 25th. Hume was charged with murder at Bow Street Magistrates Court on October 29th. He had retained the services of Alfred Goldman from the law firm Isidore Goldman and Sons. Although Goldman had never defended a murder case before, Hume knew the solicitors having struck up an association some years before. When asked how he pleaded to the charges against him, Hume responded, Absolutely not guilty. On November 5th, Donald Hume was brought back to Bow Street for a brief hearing. The media had already begun reporting on the case, and journalists were fighting to get an exclusive from the accused murderer. As a bargaining chip, the Sunday pictorial agreed to pay Hume's legal fees in exchange for an exclusive interview with Fred Redman. The article would be published after the trial. Hume told the paper, I haven't led a particularly good life. I've broken man-made laws but I have not broken the law of God about killing a man. Stanley Setti's torso and arms were buried on November 6th in a section of Golders Green Jewish Cemetery reserved for Sephardi Jews. The following day, an inquest was opened in Chelmsford under Dr. Lewis Francis Beckel. Legal representatives for Stanley Setti's family asked the public to refrain from tarring his memory, saying, It may well be if you look back into the past, as certain papers have apparently done, digging deep enough you may find something against this unfortunate man. But it is a thousand pities that a man who has lived honestly and respectfully for well over twenty years should form the subject matter of articles written purely for profit and of no benefit to the public. It has hurt the relatives deeply. Once Donald Hume had been charged with Stanley Setti's murder, he was remanded into custody at Brixton Prison, where the majority of those people awaiting trial were held. Then conditions differed vastly for those held on remand and those convicted. Hume was given a daily allowance of cigarettes and beer and did not have to wear the traditional uniform given to prisoners. He was analysed by a psychologist while on remand. After hearing Hume talk at length about what he felt was a traumatic childhood and repeated periods of rejection, the psychologist determined that Hume likely had a sense of inferiority and exaggerated his experiences to compensate for feelings of failure. A committal hearing was held in mid-November, where the prosecution disclosed what evidence had been gathered. Under cross-examination from the defence, officers who interviewed Hume denied putting him under pressure when the suspect was being questioned. 
The prosecution retraced Hume's actions following Stanley Setti's disappearance. To bolster their allegation that Hume had committed murder and robbery, the prosecutor spoke about how Hume was seemingly flush with cash in the days after October 5th. Hume had paid off his overdraft at Midland Bank. He also gave his wife £80, 20 of which he added into her savings. The remainder was deposited into the couple's Midland bank account. Hume also paid off debts owed to a newsagent and hairdresser and settled his rent arrears. His landlord testified that he saw Hume, quote, take a roll of five-pound notes from his pocketbook, two inches in diameter. Furthermore, Hume hired a car and a private plane. He also paid to have his living room carpet cleaned and dyed, and for a carving knife to be sharpened by Maurice Edwards, who worked in a garage repairing car chassis. After the summary of evidence was presented, Donald Hume was committed for trial at the Old Bailey in January 1950. The reward of £1,000 that had been offered by Stanley Setti's family was paid to Sidney Tiffin on December 23rd. Tiffin had found Stanley's torso and as a result provided the only information that led to the discovery of the missing man, dead or alive. With the amount of publicity surrounding the case, it was unsurprising when members of the public queued from the early hours of the morning to get a coveted seat in the gallery on January 18, 1950. The trial opened under Mr Justice Lewis, with the prosecution team consisting of Travers Humphreys and Henry Elam. Donald Hume stood in the dock in the middle of the court. His defence counsel Richard Levy and Claude Devine from Isidore Goldman and Sons were seated to his right. After the jury of two women and ten men were selected, Travers Humphreys delivered the prosecution's opening remarks. The prosecutor went through Hume's lengthy statement that he had given to the police following his arrest and compared it to the Crown's contention of what occurred. Humphreys said that Hume's statement was, quote, part provable lies. A murderer must lie. He must give some explanation to account for his movements. He must romance in order to avoid the consequences of his act. The prosecutor called Hume's story about Mac, Greeny and the boy a work of fiction, saying, it is complete fantasy, say the prosecution, about three men whose very existence he had to invent and who the prosecution say do not exist outside the fertile and romancing imagination of the accused. Prosecutors said that Hume had a lot of money in the days following Stanley Setti's disappearance. Some of this money was proven to be the same £5 notes given to the victim through serial numbers recorded by his bank. Travers Humphreys told the jury that the blood-stained carpet and floorboards proved that Hume was guilty, telling the court, You may agree with the proposition that he who cuts up the dead body of a recently murdered man is very probably the murderer. The opening statement was thorough and incredibly detailed. Still sadly for the prosecution, all that initial preparation was in vain because the presiding judge became fatally ill. The trial had to start again with a new judge and a new jury. The trial reopened under Mr Justice Sellers, and instead of repeating his opening statement, Travers Humphreys decided to simply outline it. The prosecution told the jury that the defendant knew, quote, at least that he had taken part in the disposition of the remains. 
despite telling the police that he couldn't help them with the inquiry into Stanley Setti's murder. Witnesses would piece together the accused's relationship with the victim and Hume's actions after October 4th, the day the prosecution believed Stanley Setti was murdered in Hume's flat. One witness, Mr Mansfield, testified that he had introduced Hume to Stanley Setti and the two men interacted during the purchase of a car. The witness did not recognise the names or descriptions of the men who supposedly asked Hume to dispose of some parcels. Mr Salvadori, who was also known to both the accused and the victim, testified similarly that he did not know who Mac, Greeny or the boy were. Members of the police force told the court about their role in the investigation and Donald Hume's arrest. Stanley Setti's sister delivered emotional testimony about her brother's disappearance and having to identify his clothing in the weeks afterwards. Ethel Stride Hume's cleaner addressed the court and said that Hume had asked her to buy a new floor cloth. He explained that he had used the other one to wash a stained carpet. Ethel noticed that the carpet was missing from the living room and the hallway, and Hume told her he had taken it to be cleaned. Cecil Allport also testified that his staff at Harding's Dye Works had cleaned and dyed the 12 feet by 9 feet carpet. Hume had asked for the job to be completed as fast as possible. Hume had claimed that the knife he had sharpened on a grindstone by Maurice Edwards was to cut a joint of meat. When his cleaner was asked if she saw a joint in the house, Ethel Stride said she had not, and she would have noticed if there was. This was because meat was rationed at the time. The cleaner testified that Hume was in the kitchen while she cleaned the flat, and he asked not to be disturbed, because he, quote, said he was tidying up a cupboard in the kitchen to make room for coal to be stored for the winter. Ethel Stride stated that around an hour later he left the house carrying two parcels. It was alleged that Hume then placed the parcels into the back of the car he had hired and drove to Elstree Aerodrome, where he had rented an Oster single-engine aircraft. Testimony from those at the aerodrome recalled that Hume removed the two parcels from the boot of his car and carried them to the plane. Those witnesses said the packages appeared to be very heavy. After landing at South End, Hume found a taxi driver, Percy Rawlings. Rawlings recalled that Hume spoke with an American accent and asked to drop him back to Golders Green. Hume paid with one of Stanley Setti's £5 notes. The following morning, Hume had to get a taxi to Elstree as he had left his dog Tony there in the car overnight. He then drove back to his flat in the higher car. Joseph Stadden testified to the court that he had been asked to stain the floor in Donald Hume's living room on October 5th. Stadden said that he did not see anything unusual on the floorboards to explain Hume's urgency to complete the job. Once Stadden finished, Hume asked for help carrying a package to his car. Joseph Stadden said, It was a very large parcel, I would say about three feet long, about two feet wide and about 15 inches thick, and it was wrapped in what looked to me like carpet felt. The witness told the court that the parcel was heavy, and when he went to put his hand underneath to lift it up, Hume stopped him and said, Don't put your hands underneath. Hold it by the rope. As the men struggled to carry the parcel down the narrow stairs, they lost their grip and it tumbled to the bottom. 
Stadden told Hume that they would not be able to carry it to his car down the street, so he asked Hume to pull the car over and they could move the parcel from the bottom of the stairs to the vehicle. Hume told Stadden to come with him to get the car, but eventually left on his own. Stadden picked up the parcel from the bottom of the stairs. He never felt the desire to check what was in it as he waited for Hume. At South End, where the plane was parked overnight, members of staff saw Donald Hume struggling to carry a large parcel to the aircraft. He told them it contained fish after declining their offers of assistance. Pathologist Dr. Camps testified that Stanley Setti's cause of death was stab wounds to the chest, adding that the injuries had likely been inflicted by a dagger. He stated that the victim had probably died in a matter of minutes before his body was subsequently dismembered. Speaking of the dismemberment, Dr. Camp said that Stanley's head was removed by cutting the tissue with a sharp instrument and then sawing through the bone in the neck to sever the head. Stanley's legs were then sawn through. Afterwards, he said that the torso dropped from a height into salt water, where it eventually washed into the dengue marshes and was discovered. The pathologist noted that Stanley's ribs had been fractured as well as his pelvis, but this had occurred after death, and the doctor likened them to the kind of injuries one would receive after falling from an aircraft. Dr. Camps believed that the injuries had been caused by one person in the flat due to the amount of blood found and the minimal blood that remained in the torso when it was discovered. When cross-examined by Hume's defence counsel, Richard Levy, the pathologist was asked if it was possible blood had seeped out of the parcels onto the floor. Dr. Camps replied that it would be possible but it depended on how quickly the limbs and torso had been wrapped up, and there would have been significant staining on the wrapping it was covered in, which there was not. There were no defensive wounds seen on the victim's hands or arms, which the defence insisted indicated more than one assault, but Dr. Camp said that a rapid attack would have rendered the victim immobile. This testimony was disputed by the pathologist retained by the defence, Dr. Donald Tear. Dr. Tear said that he would have expected resistance from Stanley Setti. The lack of defensive wounds indicated to him that there had been multiple assailants. However, Dr. Tear was unaware that Stanley Setti had a very high blood alcohol reading at the time of his autopsy and was likely highly intoxicated at the time of death, which meant the chance of resistance to an attack reduced dramatically. Donald Hume's defence counsel did not try to prove his client was a good person, and did not pretend he was an angel, acknowledging that the defendant was prone to exaggerate. He may be an exhibitionist, the barrister said, but it is not every liar who is a murderer, assuming that Hume is a liar. Richard Levy summarised the case for the defence. He tried to pick apart the prosecution's case, which bolstered the allegation that because Hume had disposed of the body, he had probably murdered Stanley too. Levy said, Members of the jury, you may feel that there is a rather long road between those facts and that conclusion. Donald Hume testified in his own defence and told the jury the same story he had told the police, but with one difference. Hume said that he knew that the parcels contained more than printing plates when he began to notice blood seeping onto his floor, but he felt too scared to go against his employers or go to the police. The defendant admitted to trying to clean up the blood and cover any traces of it in his home, but adamantly denied dismembering the body, 
killing Stanley Setti or even knowing whose body parts were in the parcels. His wife Cynthia Hume testified that she had been in the flat all evening on October 4th listening to a radio show. She had not seen or heard anyone entering the flat, nor had she seen her husband kill or dismember Stanley Setti. Earlier in the trial, the crime reporter for the People newspaper Thomas Duncan Webb was called into the courtroom after being suspected of interfering with Cynthia Hume's role as a witness by sending her letters. Webb denied trying to hamper the legal proceedings and said he had a strictly social relationship with the accused's wife. He claimed he did not know she would be called as a witness. The defence called other witnesses to back up Donald Hume's story about his employers, Mac, Greeny and the boy, who supposedly instructed him to dispose of multiple packages. One man, Lieutenant C.J. Lee, testified that he had read about the trial and lived close to Stanley Setti's garage. He said that the clientele that frequented the business were, quote, not the sort of people he would like to see around his doorstep. Spivs, a very mixed bag. Lieutenant Lee also said that he had heard the names Maxie and the boy being called in the street outside his flat. Another witness, Douglas Clay, told jurors that he had been in Paris from February to August 1949 and met gang members there who smuggled arms to Palestine. Clay said that he knew the names of some of the members. They included someone called Maxie and someone else called The Boy. However, instead of proving the existence of the men Hume spoke about, to the frustration of the defence, Douglas Clay said that they did not look remotely similar to the descriptions Hume gave. In closing, the defence admitted that Donald Hume was guilty of disposing of parcels from an aircraft on October 5th and 6th, but they reminded the jury that this was a very different crime to that of murder or dismembering a body. Richard Levy said that Dr. Tear's testimony in which he explained that there must have been multiple attackers proved the existence of the men Hume spoke about as it was unlikely someone of Hume's size could overpower and stab Stanley Setti five times. After just over a week of legal proceedings, on January 26th the jury retired, but returned three hours later to tell the judge that they could see no prospect of them reaching a verdict. They were divided in their belief of the accused's guilt or innocence. The foreman of the jury said, I feel doubtful that we shall reach a unanimous decision. There was a hung jury, and Hume was acquitted. Instead, the prosecution decided to pursue the charge of accessory to murder. Donald Hume pleaded guilty. His counsel, Richard Levy, explained that Hume knew what the parcels contained. When he was given the third parcel, Levy said Hume was, quote, on the horns of a very grave dilemma. He knew that if he failed to carry out the orders, he was dealing with a gang of men who would not hesitate to murder, and that his life was to some extent in danger. It might be said that he could and should have communicated with the police. If he had done this, his life would not have been worth a moment's grace. He found himself in an appalling position, and he felt he had no alternative.
the judge addressed Donald Hume before delivering the sentence. He said it was plain that Hume had been prepared to dispose of body parts for no other reason than money. The judge believed it was hard to imagine a graver case and sentenced Hume to 12 years in prison. But that was not the end of Donald Hume's encounters with the law, and this was far from the end of the story. This is the end of episode 37. To hear more about the crimes of Donald Hume, please tune in next week. Thank you for listening, and a special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.